This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Olive's food director, and I'll be hosting this episode. Later, we'll hear from drinks writer Hannah about the evolution of English sparkling wine and why we should all be drinking it. But first up, here's cookie writer Adam with Chief Sub Dom and how easy it is to create your own charcuterie at home. Hi guys, I'm Adam, Olive's cookery writer, and I'm here with Dom. Hello. And we're here to talk to you about charcuterie, because in the February issue of Olive magazine, uh, me and Dom, who are big charcuterie fans, decided to um, make some and then obviously document the recipes and uh, show how easily and achievable it really was. Yes. So if you you love charcuterie um, and you enjoy a bit of a project... Uh, we've got three recipes for you, um, <clears throat> just to show just how easy actually making charcuterie can be. doesn't cost much money, you don't really need any specialist equipment, all you need is a free afternoon and a good amount of patience. Um, yeah, patience is key, isn't it, really? Yes, it is, yes. Uh, but we've got ones that um, just take uh, two or three days, um, another one which lasts a bit longer. Uh, what we'll do is we'll we'll just um, introduce you to the three that we've tried, um, give you an idea of uh, of how you make them um, and what you end up with at the end. Mm-hmm. So the three that we that we've made uh, are a beef jerky, mm-hmm. a duck ham, and a brizola. Um, the jerky and the duck ham take two or three days. The brizola. Uh, you're going to need four or five weeks. Yeah, I think that's that's basically when we set out to to write this little thing. We wanted to make sure that there was something short term and like a longer term project. Obviously, um, I don't know, like patience is key, but it's nice to be able to do like show these techniques and things that we're doing in a short space of time and a longer, like more you know drawn out. Um, Thing. And we also you did like a few different techniques. So for the duck ham, it's like a dry curing mm-hmm. technique um, where you basically just like get raw duck breast, um, slash the skin, um, mix the like it's salt and sugar with uh, like whatever botanicals and herbs and spices and everything that you want, like uh, orange peel, star anise. Then put the breast skin side down into a con- like container on loads of salt. Then more salt over the the actual like flesh of the bird as opposed to the skin and leave it for like three days and then wash it off and thinly slice it Mm -hmm. yeah it's um it's really delicious it kind of resembles prosciutto uh in the sort of Mm. texture and its appearance uh but what's really nice about duck ham is um the fatty skin that's left behind it gets like a really nice sweet flavor Yeah, really sweetens doesn't it It's, it's kind of strange it's um it's Almost like, uh, yeah, like, well, I suppose like cooking it really, but you obviously don't get any crispness, but you just get that intense, sweet, mm. uh, fatty flavour. And also it takes on like, like all the herbs and spices and everything really well. Um, and we thought that was a good one because that's more of, as opposed to like charcuterie, just on a board, like eating it. Mm. I mean, that's, that's quite... Um, you can use that in loads of different things, like, you know, you put it in salads and, like, more yep. of, like, uh, you could add that then to a recipe as opposed to just eating it. Yes. So, we like we thought that one was quite good because it was a bit more versatile in its yep. use. Dead easy. You just need to basically leave it in the fridge for three days. Um, there's not really much care required of it. Yeah, you don't um, have to turn it. You don't have to you literally just plonk it in, forget about it for three days. Well, not forget about it, but just, you know, leave it for three days. <laughs> and, uh, and then wash it off and, you know, you dry it off and then just really... Thin it, slice, slice it as thin as you can, really. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the other one we did that was uh, took a similar amount of time is beef jerky. This mm. is classic beer snack. 
Yeah, this is um, this this is this is this was getting into my sort of type territory now. This is one yes. I was I was excited about. So we uh, so we ended up with a huge jar of beef jerky, which um, the team ploughed through in next to no time. <laughs> Literally uh, next to no time. Yep. So um, it's not the prettiest looking thing. Once it comes out, it looks a bit like a sort of um, mummified shoelace. Um, yeah, that's a good bit, description. Bit dark and shriveled up, but trust us when we say it tastes absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, it's got. We used lots of soy, didn't we? With this, yeah. One. That's um, the thing. That's what gives it the sort of that dark. Um, Color mm. but, um, and Worcester sauce. Yeah, um, loads of Worcester sauce. It's basically so. So the cut we used Bavette. Um, yeah. was Bavette. Um Why did we choose Bavette? Um It's got a really good grain to it. So as with all steaks, you know, you say cut against the grain. But um, this means that you can get the long, stringy sort of pieces, long, fibrous, um, which is good for jerky because that's then easily snappable, chewable. Um, and uh, and it comes in a nice piece, and it's really easy to slice up. So I think we just suggested to freeze it, didn't we? Yeah, a good um, little trick is stick in the freezer for a, then, um, an hour or so just to firm it up. Yeah, it means that you can slice it really thinly without a sort of uh, like you know sliding all over the board, and you just get really nice uh, even slices out of it. And then it's a couple of days on a marinade of just yeah, like you said, soy Worcester sauce. And um, then the, the I think the, the really cool bit for me was the air drying after the, the cure. Yeah, this is a bit of a way to fast forward it. I think traditionally you'd sort of hang it up to dry, um, probably in just a well-ventilated spot somewhere. Mm. But actually the method we've got is um, you basically hang them in a really low oven uh, with the door slightly ajar. Yeah, fan oven's important. It needs to be a fan oven. It needs that that movement of air. So we've basically got a bunch of skewers um, skewered through the top of probably about eight or ten to make a row. And And then we just sort of... Uh, put them through the grills, didn't we? Um, yeah, so think of like a crosshatch. So the skewer's going along one side and then the grill's going down the other so that basically, you know, it's the, 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 the grill or the grate or whatever of, of your rack is then suspending um, those uh, hanging pieces of jerky in your oven, um, which then, yeah, and we put it, we just did like basically put all the beef um, on those. Put the... Do we do it from thickest to smallest? Yeah, I think we put the larger bits towards the back where the oven's where the fan... slightly hotter and the fan um, sort of hits, the air hits them first um, just because they're going to take a little bit longer mm-hmm. to dry out. Uh, put the smaller pieces, the, the stragglers uh, towards the front. Uh, and then it's just a key, in case of keeping an eye on them, just check them every half an hour, an hour. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really like, it's, it's up, what, 50 degrees on the fan oven, is that what? And um, it's it's... It's not long enough that you can, like, you know, I mean, you know, it's half an hour to an hour. It's not going to go wildly wrong if you have to go to, you know, nip out and do anything or anything like that. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty forgiving. So, and actually, the, the, the transformation from, you know, like wet, cured, raw beef into something so delicious and umami and yep. like, yeah, the, literally the perfect beer snack in just a few hours, obviously with a few days of marinating, but, um, it was yeah really cool for me to see yeah, something yeah. like that because and yeah, you don't it's really got, know how it's done. You just on a, it's one of those things you just buy in a pub or get or you know yeah yeah that's what that's what's good about trying out your your own charcuterie thing because it's um, some of them can seem a bit sort of mysterious um, all the sort of the you know the old traditions and methods mm. that go behind making them but actually a lot of these methods are really straightforward um, and yeah. uh, these recipes are a really good start. 
uh, if you fancy having a go at yourself, um, which takes us on to the last one, Brizola. Yeah, so this was a slightly bigger project. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we uh, we did name our Brizola just to kind of keep us uh, emotionally attached and involved. <laughs> um, just, I think I think it's important that you do too if you, if you if you make this. And I really, honestly, suggest doing this because this was really amazing for me. It was great. It's um, again, this does take longer, but it's just as easy as the other two. Um, essentially, it's this is about hanging uh, and about um, allowing the the weight to reduce on the piece of beef. Um, so this this is similar to air drying in the oven, but a lot more natural. Just literally hanging in a like a well ventilated sort of not too hot, not too cold room, and that that process of air drying mm. like it's really traditional with charcuterie yep. the other two are sort of they are charcuterie but this is like traditional charcuterie isn't it? yeah brizzoli yeah it comes from uh, <laughs> italian alps goes back a long long way um it takes about four to five weeks but trust us it's well worth yeah, the wait and don't be scared by that because like the actual hands-on time is like nothing yeah uh, and what you end up with you end up with a sort of a, a beautiful long slab of beef which you then uh, cut into wafer-thin wafer, slices. Yeah. Um, the quality of the meat really matters here because if you can get a really good marbled piece of beef, yeah, um, the flavour will, will be uh, well, yeah, so much, improved. so much more pronounced. I mean, if you look at ours in the in, at the back of the magazine, it's like got beautiful fat running all the way through, mm. which is obviously just going to make it utterly delicious. It's just got that thing where if you um, that gorgeous deep purple colour, if you get a really nice thin slice, mm. you hold it up against the light, yeah, like a window pane, like stained glass, exactly, like beef yeah. stained glass. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, um, you you know, you can have it just a drizzle of olive oil, squeeze of lemon juice on its own, or um, we suggest uh, serving it with uh, a rocket and parmesan salad. Yeah, I, um, I, I basically just ate a lot of this on its own because it was so delicious. Um, and I think the cool thing about this one is a sort of combination of the two techniques from before. So you start off with a dry cure, um, and obviously like salt, sugar, any, um, and importantly, it's a Prague powder, isn't it? Yes, that's the one thing that you'll need to, um, you probably need to go online to buy Prague powder. Um, it's basically a curing salt, um, and when you're curing something for this length of time, it is well worth using um, this proper curing salt that you can buy from specialist websites. We, we offer a couple of uh, ideas of where yeah. to get it. Um, but basically, this will stop um, its going off, basically. Um, it's just an added protection, isn't it, yeah. to, to against any kind of uh, nasties that might... Because um, obviously the salt, and, uh, the salt and the cure will do that already, but it's just sort of yeah. an added... Uh, yeah. If you're hanging this, that, like these sort of things for this amount of time, exactly, it's just an added yeah. uh, protection, really. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't want to wait four or five weeks and then find that, you know, you, you, it's the meat spoiled. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's well worth... You only need a tiny amount, so if you do buy online, it'll last you a long time. Um, so it's worth getting hold of some. Um, so yeah, so if you fancy uh, giving it a go, check out um, the website or the February issue um, and and give us uh, one of these recipes um, a go. But just to finish, um, uh, it happens that next week uh, on Tuesday is the launch of the... Um, the first ever British Charcuterie Awards. I know, that wasn't even planned. That's just a nice little uh, side thing. Yes, so um, I'm, I'm planning on popping along on Tuesday evening for the launch. Um, it's, it's basically uh, it's promoting British um, producers um, and um, having a look at all the amazing stuff that's being created in this country. Um, they're gonna be, there's going to be judging in... Uh, it's going to happen in August at the Countryfile Live show. Um, there's a lot of... Um, Big name judges are going to be taking part. Prue Leith, Angela Hartnett, Felicity Cloak, oh, some cool. but a few. Um, and they're going to be judging in nine categories. 
And then they're going to be uh, choosing a champion of champions product at the end, as well as a champion producer. That's really Um, cool. So I'm really looking forward to popping along on Tuesday and finding out the kind of thing that's being created um, in the UK. I'm just going to eat loads of cured meat. That sounds ideal. I hope there's beer and red wine on tap, (laughs) as I'm I'm sure there will be. Um, I think that's pretty much it. Yes, thank you. uh, And if uh, you do create your own charcuterie and you want to take a photo and um, put it on social media for us to see, then please do. Tag us. We'd love to see it. Yeah, we'd be really hyped if you you made some of this. It's really cool. It's like our little babies, basically. We, We really love doing this one. Cheers, guys. I'm here with Mike Wagstaff from uh, Greyfriars uh, Vineyard, and we're here today uh, to chat about English sparkling wine, which seems to be having um, a bit of a moment over the last few years. Um, sales are increasing, demand is increasing. Um, I think there's something like f- over 500 vineyards in the UK. That's absolutely right. I think at last count, it was 500 vineyards, but of those, only just over 100 actually make their own wine. So mm-hmm. the rest are either contract growers or have their great their wine process made for them by somebody else. Um, Greyfriars was... There's actually been a vineyard on site at Greyfriars mm-hmm. for almost 30 years. It was yeah. planted in 1989 by our predecessors as what I can only describe as an eccentric experiment. Yes. They planted an acre and a half, about 1,500 vines, and after a couple of years of experimenting with some of the sort of German hybrid varieties, settled on what was there when we took it over, which was mostly Chardonnay with some Pinot Noir, Mm. Uh, obviously two of the principal Champagne grape varieties. Mm -hmm. We took over in 2010 and have spent the last seven years expanding from an acre and a half to... 40 acres under vine. Uh, last year's harvest was 125 tonnes. Wow. So we've come a long way in a few years. But, um, you, I mean, English sparkling wine is, is booming, I guess mm. is the right word, but it's from a very small base. Mm, we still probably only produce a few million bottles, which sounds like a lot if you're thinking about drinking it yourself. Yes. But, of course, compared to UK's sparkling wine and champagne consumption of about mm. 100 million bottles plus another 50 or 60 Mm. of Prosecco, it's a drop in the ocean. Mm. And that's what makes it so exciting because we're now entering a period where both the quality, Mm -hmm. the quantity and the consistency have all improved dramatically over the last few years and we've got a market that is very receptive and very interested in food and and drink of provenance in general Mm. and... English and British products in particular. Mm. So um, it's a really exciting time to be making wine. I mean, definitely. Um, obviously, you know, Greyfriars has won numerous awards and, you know, we're seeing English sparkling wines beating champagne in blind tastings. It's, so the quality of the product is really sort of beginning to be acknowledged by the wider world. So I was, I've been doing a bit of research recently into emerging wine regions and um, sort of in terms of things like climate change and changing weather conditions, what role has that played in, in sort of why we're able to produce such amazing wines? I think there's, there's three or four factors that have turned England into a great potential wine-producing mm-hmm. area. The first is climate change. Undoubtedly, mm-hmm. even a small warming has moved the northern limit of where you can grow grapes commercially mm. forward from somewhere south of the Channel to where it is now, which is probably somewhere between Oxford and Birmingham. So that's the first thing. We're also in an astronomical cycle, which is related to the orbit of the Earth around the sun, Mm -hmm. which means that we're in a warming trend, 
Uh, and we're now in the third period where you've been able to grow grapes and make wine in England, in Britain. Mm -hmm. The first was during the Roman period, mm -hmm. the second during the early medieval period, and obviously everyone knows of the mini ice ages of the 16th and 17th century. Yes. Mm -hmm. We're now coming out of that, mm -hmm. so we're seeing a warming trend, which is actually the cycles named after a couple of um, Serbian astronomers whose names I can't even pronounce. <laughs> um, but that would suggest we are in a in this part of the world, in a warming trend over and above global warming or climate change. Mm. We've also seen um, improved plant science, so people understand better how plants work and how grapes ripen. Mm -hmm. um, and so the improvements in both genetics in terms of isolating clones that are suited to our climates, mm -hmm. trellising and planting, means that we're now getting more efficient uh, mm. grape growing and winemaking. And the third is that people stopped focusing on still wine mm. and started focusing on sparkling wine. Mm. It is no coincidence that Champagne is the most northerly wine-producing region mm. in France, and that's bec fundamentally because to make great sparkling wine, you need slightly less ripe grapes than you do to make still wine. Mm. And the English climate is now perfectly suited to making world-class sparkling wine, while we're not quite as warm as champagne, mm. our longer growing season allows more time, about four to six weeks, for the flavours to develop in the grapes. Okay. And so what we lose on a little bit of ripeness, we make up on general flavour development. Mm. So, and all of that was, there was a light bulb moment about 10 or 15 years ago mm. when people thought, hang on, why are we banging our head against the wall trying to make still wine, mm. which we can do intermittently, let's focus on sparkling wine. Mm. Uh, and that was really the genesis of, of what is now a, a booming industry. Mm. However, because um, I know sort of across the world, um, wine yields have been down, you know, for various weather-related, climate-related climate reason, uh, reasons. Um, has that had an effect in England? Have yields been down? Have they been unaffected? Um, we are at the margin of where you can grow grapes. So the volatility in both ripeness and yields every year is probably more extreme than you would see in any other area. Mm. You see in the press that if yields of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc are down 30%, the growers declare it a national disaster. Mm. If it was only down 30%, that's within the accuracy that we can predict in this yeah. country. Um, the last couple of years, we have been hit by frost in mm -hmm. 2016 and 2017, together with challenging growing conditions, dampness, poor fruit, etc., all that kind of stuff, which meant that we've had a couple of years of low yields, mm. but against a rapidly increasing stock of mm. producing vines. So the production probably hasn't gone up as much as it would have done, but it's certainly not gone down, I don't think. Mm. Um, I think if you're in England, you need, it's always a, you know, we found now after seven years of, seven harvests, that it's a white knuckle ride all the way to the last day of harvest. Mm. There will be things that go wrong mm. and you're just hanging on by your fingernails <laughs> at the end, by the end of it. But somehow it seems to come good yeah. at the end. So that's just, you know, if you can't deal with that nerve wracking ride, no. you better not grow <laughs> grapes in England. Yeah. Well, it must be really exciting. Um, so you use the classic champagne grapes, um, sort of like Pinot Noir, at Grey Fries. Um, I know that other vineyards have used sort of slightly more unusual, like Saval, is that, Saval, is that right? Saval is, um, is very commonly planted in England, mm -hmm. uh, originally to make still wine. And the reason for that is it ripens, 
and it's disease resistant because it's a hybrid grape mm. variety. Um, uh, it's a it's a perfectly fine grape variety, mm-hmm. but the best sparkling wines in the world are pretty much universally made with the three champagne grape yeah. varieties. So over 90% of our plantings are the three, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. Mm-hmm. But we have a few plantings of three other varieties. So we planted some Pinot Gris in 2012 as an experiment because we like drinking it. <laughs> and we make a little bit of still wine I out noticed, of that. I noticed, yeah. yeah. Um, we also have some Sauvignon Blanc and we produce two wines with that. One is a sparkling Sauvignon mm-hmm. Blanc and we're the only producer in England to make Yeah, I've never actually had a sparkling. I've never come across one. Well, um, by a coincidence, as of next week, they're going to be serving our sparkling Sauvignon Blanc by the glass here in the Coral Room. Yes, well, um, so we're recording this podcast here at the Coral Room um, at the Bloomsbury Hotel and um, it's kind of known for having a very long, extensive list of English sparkling wines, which Greyfriars does appear on, but it's almost 30 wines um, on there, which, again, is, is something which is really just reflective of how much people are paying attention, you know, to, to English sparkling wine. Um, something else I wanted to ask, um, you, you kind of uh, talked about a little bit earlier, but so still wines are, are more challenging to produce. Um, English red wine, is that ever going to be a thing or there is it are, just not There are not a possible? few people that have made um, red wine. Mm-hmm. Some of it's made from German and hybrid varieties, which is red, but it's always low alcohol, maximum 11 or 12%, mm-hmm. which doesn't give you much body. But there are two or three people who regularly produce a Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. which I think is it's good and it's getting better. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, from my perspective, I don't think, from a cost perspective, we can ever produce a wine that would be better than <laughs> a comparable New Zealand Pinot Noir mm. or a Burgundy at the same price. Mm. So, f- to me, actually, let's stick to what we can make world-class, amazing wines... Mm rather than waste our valuable Pinot Noir grapes to try and make a facsimile. Yeah. Do what you do best. Red. Do what you do best. It's, but that's, that's the same everywhere in the world. Of Definitely. Right, so we've got some Greyfriars wines to have a little taste and um, Mike can talk me through each one. So um, which ones do we have here we've now? We've got three uh, of our, I guess, our signature wines. These are all vintage wines. So the first wine... Um, that we're pouring now is our classic cuvee. Mm-hmm. Um, by the name, you can expect you you won't be surprised to know that this is a blend of all three champagne grape varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that are interested in the technical detail, it is Chardonnay led, so it's just under fifty percent Chardonnay, thirty six percent Pinot Noir, and sixteen percent um, Pinot Meunier. It's from 2013, which was the first year that our new planting started producing fruit, and it's now had three and a half years in the bottle, fermented in tank, and like all of our wines, it's relatively low dosage, low mm-hmm. levels of sugar mm-hmm. in dosage. This particular wine only has five grams per litre. Okay. We, like, we like our wines on the dry side, but also we like to let the fruit do the talking rather than the sugar. Mm. So anyway, shall we try it? Definitely. Mm, wow. Mm. Um, this is showing mm. particularly well at the moment. We started releasing this wine about 15, 18 months ago, and mm-hmm. it's just got better and better. Um, it won a silver medal in the Decanter Worldwide mm-hmm. Wine Awards. And in fact, to be honest, I've got even higher hopes for it this year yeah. because it's got a year's more maturity. Um, 
I think this is a, a great wine which really shows what you know we're capable of producing mm. in England. So. I mean, it's got really lovely, really crisp fruit. Crisp. Fruit notes. It's crisp fruit notes, uh, dry stone, and it's also there's a little hint of um, uh, citrus and apple aromas mm, in the background, definitely. which is very characteristic of cool climate Chardonnays and mm. in general and in particular English. Mm. And so it's nice and crisp. It's, I guess, champagne style of wine, but not really. Mm. If you see what I mean. If I was trying to describe it orally, mm. um, lovely pale, uh, delicate colour. And yeah, um, starting to develop nice um, uh, brioche notes of uh, autolysis now after three and a half years. Mm. Yes, it's delicious. It's kind of perfect for this sort of spring, springs emerging. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely what we find is that, you know, probably no surprise, is that you know, people's wine, t- sparkling wine tastes are seasonal. Mm. So summer, pink tends to be much more popular. Mm. And in winter, people focus on the white and more traditional style of wines, mm. which, you know, seems seems to go down very well. And um, I'm really, really pleased with this. You know, for our first blend that we produced, it produced yeah. this is, I think it's an amazing wine. Yeah, it's I'm lovely. biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, I liked it. Um, I think it really... Um, these kind of pale early English sort of springs you know where kind of the sunlight's coming out but it's still a little bit you know a little bit chilly I think this kind of wine really suits this time of year um, just in sort of how clear and crisp the flavours are um, okay so what's what's next um, the next wine we're going to serve <laughs> is we'll we'll move on to our Blanc de Blanc okay um, as you would expect Blanc de Blanc a white of white so it's a white fizz made from mm-hmm. white grapes in this case it's 100% Chardonnay okay um, this wine is a little bit different in the uh, winemaking technique um, it's from 2014 um, it is all the base wine is barrel fermented and aged mm-hmm. for six months before we bottle it for secondary fermentation so that's that's a more traditional it way of making it depends on is which it? depends on which house you talk to mm-hmm. obviously if you were Krug, you'd say we use barrels. Mm-hmm. If you were somebody else, they use all tanks. But mm. um, we, we use barrels. They're all old, between two and five years old when we mm-hmm. get them. Uh, and we use them not because we want to get the vanilla oaky flavours into the wine, but because the, the, the fermentation in the, the, in the barrel gives the wine a lot nicer mouthfeel. It makes it approachable much earlier than a traditional Chardonnay, what base wine would be. Mm-hmm. And it gives it more complexity, and, it, and this wine will go definitely go well with food. Mm. So, okay. shall we try it? Yes, definitely. So, it's got a very kind of full... It's got a really softer, lovely. creamier mouthfeel, mm. and that's the effect of the barrels. It also, uh, the barrels seem to turbocharge the apple and citrusy aromas mm. in, in the Chardonnay. In fact, when we, uh, from our first harvest, 2013, we made both a barrel-fermented Blanc de Blanc mm-hmm. and a ta- tank-fermented Blanc de Blanc. And the difference between the two was so striking really? that we decided to... Bo- we were originally going to blend them back together before bottling, mm. but they were so different. And in fact, our... Uh, barrel fermented uh, Blanc de Blanc was ready to drink a year and a half before the tank fermented. 
so with a, lower level with lower levels yeah. of dosage as well. So That's it really has yeah. an, an added benefit from the winemaker's perspective mm-hmm. is that the wine becomes approachable much 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 sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so you said this is great with food. What would you what would you recommend with it? We we did come up with a, a food pairing um, last year for some of our wines. Our, the classic cuvee we suggested would go really well with fish and chips. <laughs> oh, great. Good, um, our rosé, which we'll try next, goes would go really well with smoked salmon. Mm-hmm. And this, um, I think um, it will go really well with um, a nice fish dish. It, it is more, I think, a bit more food-friendly than a lot mm. of Blanc de Blancs, which, are very, which were quite dry and straight up and very much an aperitif style. Mm. This is... This is, this is something you can enjoy with dinner. So, yeah. Perfect. All right, so we've got final wine to try is a rosé. So um, both the Blanc de Blanc and the rosé mm-hmm. are now the, the fourth release of each of these wines from 2014. Okay. So in 2011, mm-hmm. from our first harvest, we managed to produce a, a grand total of 450 bottles of our rosé, <laughs> which was the first wine that we made. Um, and... Um, just to show how much we've grown, we bottled 13,000 bottles wow. last year. Um, these two wines are very much our sign- signature wines. Mm-hmm. Um, the Blanc de Blanc last year, the, the 2013, won a gold medal in the Decanter Worldwide Wine Awards, which we were absolutely flabbergasted yeah, by. Amazing. Um, and um, the Rosé, which we'll taste in a second, won a silver for the second consecutive year. Um, we've, this is our 2014. Um, this wine is... Pinot Noir Mm -hmm. and 10% Pinot Meunier. Um, In 2014, the Pinot Meunier was particularly ripe and fruity. When we were putting the wines together, we found that adding a little smidgen of Pinot Meunier added another fruity dimension to the Mm. wine. Uh, The the previous vintage has been 100% Pinot Noir and really added something super extra to it. It also is very, very low dosage. This, I think, is four or five grams per litre. Mm-hmm. The 2013 was three and a half grams. So you think it should be very dry, and, but it's not. The fruitiness of the, and the berry flavours of the Pinot Noir really mm-hmm. come out. And um, for those of you who are not here, mm-hmm. you can see it's got a very delicate pale colour. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very subtle. It is very subtle. It's almost uh, like golden. Golden, and under artificial light, you could almost be confused into thinking that it's it's a a sort of slightly dark Mm. um, white wine. Um, And the reason for that is that we make our wine using the Senya method. Mm -hmm. So we don't blend a red and a white base wine to make the the final blend. We make a rosé. A rosé base wine, uh, mm-hmm. and then ferment that. This wine. Is, how do you, if you don't mind me asking, how how do you make a rosé a rosé wine? You basically the, what uh, we do is we crush and destem the grapes, mm-hmm. and then we soak them in the press for about two hours on their skins mm-hmm. to get some colour extraction. Oh, in okay. exactly the same way as you would do making a rosé still wine. Mm-hmm. Um, that is enough to give you colour, but not the tannins and textures Which that you get with the red wine. So in essence, it's a pink fruity white wine rather than a, than a pink red wine, if mm. you see what I mean. Yes. Um, but of course, what that means is the colour that you start with determines what colour you finish with mm. um, and you lose a bit of colour. So it is, um, by accident in 2013, we ended up with a paler rosé yes. than we expected. But by the time we came to release it, pale rosés were quite the thing. So we decided Definitely. to stick with a nice pale, pale colour. Does the... Um, uh 
the colour of the rosé relate to the level of sugar at all? No, it doesn't. The, the, the colour of the rosé simply relates, if you are blending, mm. you know, a traditional, uh, a traditional rosé would have something like 12 to 14% of the base wine would be a red Pinot Noir, um, blended with a white Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. for example. Um, um, so it doesn't have a relation to the sugar. It, it's related. It's, of course, the reason they do that in Champagne is because every house has their own traditional colour, and they mm. want to make sure that the, it's consistent. And when you pop it, you get the the, the colour that you expect. Exactly. Doing it our way, we do get variations, but that's what makes life interesting. Mm, definitely. Well, let's try this out. Mm. But again, I mean that's very dry. It is. It is on the dry in a, side. In a, in a sorry, in a good way. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's again. It's that. It's the lack of sugar, I think, which lets the fruit sort of shine through. That, yeah, that's the intention. And when when we and when we started uh, producing our blends, it was very much our ambition to let the let the underlying fruit flavours come through rather than you know, smother them with higher levels of sugar. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need it, to be honest. Um, you know, there are some people that like their their pink fizz sweet and mm, sticky. That's the thing, isn't it? It's always mostly they're my, people like my mother-in-law. I'm afraid to say, <laughs> but but we're trying to make we describe this as rosé for grown-ups. Yeah, yeah. It's always um, it's always the thing. It's always you know, if if anyone's asked for a rosé, it's always make sure it's not too sweet. It's definitely a dry rosé is really sort of particularly in the summer is what you want to drink. Yeah, it is, and um, I, you know, as I said, this this is getting better and better year on year, and this has mm. now had two and a half years on the the leaves and the cork, and is it's a fabulous wine, but it's lovely. I'm right. biased. So um, let's finish up maybe one more question. What would you say are the the next trends or the or the, or the next things to watch out for when it comes to English sparkling wine? What I think we're going to see is that more people are now getting to grips with their terroir, their, their land and the climate and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. So what, hopefully what we will see is, in addition to larger volumes of the traditional styles of wine, a blend, a blanc de blanc, a rosé, mm -hmm. that people will start to experiment with single plot uh, wines that express one particular plot or site mm. um, they will experiment with sort of more how should I say kind of unusual ways of making wine you know this is obviously a huge trend in champagne for grower producers who are doing lots of very interesting things I don't think you're going to see a lot of organic or biodynamic wines in England simply mm -hmm. because it's too hard in this climate mm. but I think hopefully you will see people starting to experiment and, and push where they're where the where the grapes can go to, mm -hmm. um, and we've been bottling some kind of small bottlings uh, for the last two or three years, which will start to re release hopefully this year. Mm -hmm. So one is a, a small bottling of our old vines Blanc de Blanc, which mm -hmm. is the original planting. So they're thir nearly thirty-year-old vines. Mm. The vines are still producing merrily, two and a half tons a year. And um, last year we bottled two thousand four hundred bottles of the single single plot mm -hmm. uh, Blanc de Blanc barrel fermented and will give it extra long ageing and I think when it comes out um, it will be you know it, should, well, it was a great wine <laughs> when it went into the bottle it should be even better when it comes out oh, great well 
So hopefully we'll see people doing some more experiments and trying to create things that are unique to their terroir. Mm. Well, it sounds like things could only get more exciting. OK, well, Mike, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Hannah. <laughs> that was this week's Olive Magazine podcast. If you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can still pick up a copy of the February issue now or go and download the app version. Bye for this week and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat.